immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Turn On The Light. I am your host, Louise Cordery. So this episode is part two of the story of the black-footed ferret and part two of my interview with Soraya Abdel-Hadi. So if you haven't listened to part one back in episode 15, I recommend you head back there and do that now. Um, otherwise, some of what I'm talking about in the in the story of the, of the black-footed ferret might not make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> um, but yes, welcome back if you have listened to that one um, and are now joining me for part two. It's very exciting. Um, this is also an exciting, pivotal episode, if you like, as it will be the last episode of series one of Turn on the Light. Um, I feel like we've come to a good end point. Um, 16 lovely, well, 15 species in the spotlight, 15 stories um, in total of animals that have made it back from the absolute brink um, of extinction and a little few positive stories to hopefully inject some hope into um, your lives and relieve a little bit of eco-anxiety. As we all know, there are terrible things going on and work really, really needs to be done. Um, governments really need to start taking climate change seriously and all of you guys out there who are so dedicated to the cause it's a bit of a morale booster to show that you know these efforts do pay off um, in in many different cases um, so I hope you've taken a little bit of positivity from this little podcast here um, and I hope yeah you've enjoyed listening to the stories and I hope you've enjoyed the interviews um, with all of my wonderful guests that we've had on um, so it's now time to take a break um, and come back fresh and live and kicking for series two in 2021. Um, as listeners, regular listeners of the show will know, at the top of each episode, I like to do a piece of good news from the past couple of weeks. Um, so this is my final piece of positive global animal related news for you. And it's a baby story. Now, we all love baby stories. Um, so this is the news that in the first half of 2020, Kenya experienced a baby boom in elephants with over 170 calves born. So more than 170 baby elephants were born in Amboseli National Park in Kenya this year. Um, and this was due to a couple of factors. Um, so frequent heavy rains and strong anti-poaching efforts meant that food and water was abundant and the elephants were generally safer thanks to the increasingly successful protections for Ellie's. Yay! So now we've had that wonderful piece of news put out there into the world. Um, without further ado, let's get back to the conservation success story of the black-footed ferret. So back to the black-footed ferret, Latin name Ostella nigrips. When we left off last time, we knew that biologists had managed to capture 18 individuals from the wild, 18 individuals that were left um, of that extant population in the wild, to create a captive breeding program after it was thought, first thought, that the ferrets were extinct, only for them then to be rediscovered by a rancher's dog in 1981. And this prompted the launch of an ambitious captive breeding program beginning in 1987 with these 18 individuals to save the species. 
Now, the black-footed ferret is an example of a species that benefits from really strong reproductive science. Um, so the captive breeding program was such a success as they used artificial insemination as a technique to get them breeding. Um, and this is one of the first examples of assisted reproduction contributing to the conservation of an endangered species in nature. So it was a pretty, um, pretty seminal piece of science that was employed here to make sure that these ferrets could survive uh, into the future. Now, in 1988, the Smithsonian's National Zoo was the first to receive offspring from these original 18. Um, and they then began breeding black-footed ferrets outside of Wyoming. Um, if you listen to previous episodes, one of my guests, AJ, used to work at the Smithsonian National Zoo in Washington, D.C., um, and did touch a little bit um, on having worked with those guys and the wonderful work that the National Zoo does to contribute to conservation and captive breeding efforts globally. Um, so since that point, uh, 726 black-footed ferrets have been born at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, the SCBI. Um, and several hundred of those ferrets born at SCBI have been reintroduced into the wild successfully. Um, so for the last 30 years, we've had a concerted effort from many federal and state agencies, zoos, Native American tribes particularly, which is important because a lot of the black-footed ferret habitat is on Native American land. It's on their reservations. Um, conservation organisations and private landowners have all worked together with these captive breeding techniques, with you know, legislation and habitat protections in place to make sure that these ferrets have a second chance for survival. The US Fish and Wildlife Service, state and tribal agencies, private landowners, conservation groups and North American zoos, where the captive breeding has largely taken place, they have all worked together to actively reintroduce ferrets back into the wild since 1991. So the captive breeding itself began in 1987, and then a few years later, in 1991, they were able to reintroduce ferrets back into the places where they would have existed um, back in the day. So this began um, in Shirley Basin in eastern Wyoming, and the reintroduction spanned, uh, expanded to Montana, six sites in South Dakota in 1994, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, Saskatchewan, said it right that time, Canada, and Chihuahua in Mexico. So it's spreading across that North American continent plateau into Canada and down to Mexico. Um, and the Toronto Zoo have actually bred hundreds of black-footed ferrets as well, most of which have been released into the wild. So we've had a population of 35 animals released into Grasslands National Park in southern Saskatchewan in 2009 recently, and a litter of newborn kits was observed from that released population in July 2010. Um, and this is just one example of a reintroduction site that has experienced multiple years of reproduction from released individuals. So they are thriving. They are giving birth and reproducing themselves in the wild, which is amazing. Um, and now that reintroduction program actually now spans 30 sites all across North America. Um, so it's it was looking pretty good, like things were going okay, getting the numbers up. These animals were surviving in the wild, which is always a bit of a sort of touch and go moment for reintroducing reintroducing species. But I have to say, these conservation efforts haven't been without their challenges. So of course we come up against uh, the human problem um, of 
agriculture um, and farmers, ranchers, stock growers, they've traditionally fought against the presence of prairie dogs, which, as I spoke about largely in the previous episode, prairie dogs make up the majority of black-footed ferret diets. Um, And in 2005, even so recent as that, the US Forest Service began poisoning prairie dogs in private land buffer zones of the Kanata Basin of Buffalo Gap National Grassland. Not happy about this, of course, the last group of conservationists um, and the general public as well, to be honest. Um, so conservation groups in from sorry, conservation groups such as um, Climate Community and Biodiversity Alliance exposed this practice. Um, and there was national media public outcry and a lawsuit was mobilised. Um, and federal officials said that the poisoning plan was not OK to go ahead and it was revoked. Um So that's one problem that was come up against um, people not being keen on prairie dogs being around on their land. But luckily it was fought back against um, and managed to protect the prairie dogs from poisoning, which therefore, you know, then protects the black footed ferret and their food source. Um, Now, there was also the problem of fighting against further outbreaks of sylvatic plague. Again, in the previous episode, I touched on... um, that prairie dogs will contract sylvatic plague, which is from the same the same strain, the same family as what would cause bubonic plague and pneumonic plague in people. Um, it's just sylvatic means it's in wildlife. Um, so this outbreak swept through prairie dogs' um, populations and meant that the blackfooted ferrets didn't really have anything to eat, and that was a big factor that led to their mass decline in the first place. Um, so there have been further outbreaks um, of this plague. Um, so black-footed ferrets, when they were first reintroduced, a sylvatic plague swept through the release sites in 1999 um, and decimated the populations of ferrets and prairie dogs again. Since then, prairie dog populations have rebounded and this was kind of a learning point. It was a turning point to make sure um, that these conservation programmes had management tools in place to mitigate the effects of any plagues that were to happen in the future. So captive ferrets get a series of shots that give them an 80% chance of surviving the disease, um, and wild-born ferrets are repeatedly trapped to receive the full inoculation um, against the disease. So they're protected against getting the plague themselves, Um, which is obviously all well and good, but as I've said quite a few times. (laughs) Prairie dogs are are obviously the main food source for the ferrets. So even if the ferrets themselves are protected against the plague, if their food source gets it and they all die, ferrets will starve. So with many populations continuing to face that threat of sylvatic plague, the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, in collaboration with the Black-Footed Ferret Recovery Programme, working with agencies such as the Wyoming Game and Fish Department and the Colorado Division of Wildlife to dust prairie dog towns with with an insecticide that reduces the spread of the plague. So they are making sure that these management tools are in place to make sure that blackfooted ferrets have the absolute best chance of survival out there that they can. So the SCBI um, are also partnering with non-profit group Prairie Wildlife Research to survey wild populations in reintroduction field sites, um, such as ones in in Wyoming. Um, And as part of that research, they collect blood, hair and ecoparasites. And they're all banked um, in uh, the US Fish and Wildlife Service facility over in Colorado. Um, 
so they can be monitored um, for their health and disease present within a population in that way as well. Um, and a bit of a bit of a tangent in the section of the podcast here, but excitingly, um, in an effort to maintain genetic diversity of the species, the team is also considering in vitro fertilization, which is a technique that hasn't yet been used on ferrets. Um, so artificial insemination has been successful enough to minimise the loss of genetic diversity in the closed population that only came from those individual, 18 individuals that were first caught from the wild, if you remember. Um, but now they're moving on to look at in vitro fertilisation and to make sure genetic, genetic diversity is absolutely maintained to the highest level. So that's exciting. So looking at all of that that I've just rambled on about there, so the captive breeding going really well, reintroduction going really well, but there was challenges um, that have come up against, that the black-footed ferret has come up against in terms of survival. Um, and for those reasons, as they're not out of the woods yet, and in any reputable conservation programme, reintroduction programme, the animals continue to be monitored um, by the facilities that have released them into the wild. Um, so, for example, for the past three years, the Arizona Game and Fish Department biologists have released ferrets wearing radio collars and that will broadcast their location um, so they can keep tabs on them. Um, in the first two years of this, the researchers monitored and documented ferrets as they ranged far and wide looking for food. Um, they have record of one that even travelled more than 10 miles in just a couple of nights um, to find food. Um and so they're able to track these guys. They're able to see if they look like they're at risk of mortality or they're a likely mortality and if they've just stopped moving. Um, and they can go out into the field and assess the reasons for that having happened. Um, so they can make sure that the reintroductions that are happening are steadily more and more successful, that we're learning more about black-footed ferret biology um, and really, really giving them as strong a foothold as is humanly possible for them to flourish again in the wild. So, whilst black-footed ferrets aren't yet out of the woods due to threats from habitat loss and sylvatic plague and other diseases, hard-working conservationists have managed to save them from disappearing forever. The Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute says that the ongoing recovery of the black-footed ferret is one of their most successful conservation efforts. And this success story was in fact shared during the Earth Optimism Summit in April of this year, which was a wonderful summit um, that actually Jesse Panazzolo from Lonely Conservationists actually had a, a little a little appearance in that as well. Um, but that's a different story. Um, but it's always nice to, to know those connections. Um, so yes, the Earth Optimism Summit was set up by um, the Smithsonian. Um, and just, yeah, keeping that optimism at the forefront of people's minds um to try and make the planet a better place and like saying look at these wonderful things that are happening all over the world which this podcast tries to tries to do um in its little sphere of its own um so that's another reason why this story is 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 one of my favorites and the black-footed ferret is one of my fave um conservation success stories um i feel like there's a lot of amazing things about it and then it's been used as a success story to inspire other people um at an earth optimism summit you know <laughs> the very thing that i'm trying to do here has been has been a summit and this story was was spread about there um 
So that's wonderful. As I sort of touched on a little bit um, earlier there, so much is still being learnt about the ferrets. Um, you know, when organisations first started out, people like research wildlife biologists thought oh this is this is a simple thing to do this is a simple system ferrets are pretty much dependent on prairie dogs it's it's a pretty closed system we can we can do this um we should be able to figure this out relatively quickly um but as the captive breeding and reintroduction efforts have gone along every question that's answered regarding how the system functions leads to 10 more questions and biologists are discovering that actually it's amazingly complex um so we're still learning so much about these animals, their biology and how to save them, um, which is only ever a good thing to arm yourself with all this knowledge. So as successful as it has been so far, that's only going to get better. Uh, and today, recovery efforts have helped restore the black-footed ferret population to nearly three to four hundred animals across North America. And as I said again, like although great strides have been made to recover the black-footed ferret, Habitat loss and disease do remain key threats to the highly endangered species. But we must appreciate this amazing feat, and that in 2008 the IUCN reclassified the species as endangered, which is an incredible and substantial improvement since the 1996 assessment when it was considered extinct in the wild, as it was only surviving in captivity. So again, what a bounce back even though they are still classed as endangered, to go from extinct in the wild to endangered is pretty incredible. And their recovery in the wild is not only amazing for the species itself, but it signifies the health of the grassland ecosystems which they depend on to survive. So these guys living and thriving means good things for their entire area in which they exist. So, yeah, as I've spoken about, it, it signifies the presence or ab absence of disease, depending on how they're doing. Um, and importantly, their and their prey's existence in harmony with landowners, farmers and basically just humans. So I wanted to end the series on this little fellow as this story is truly extraordinary, but they still need our help for now. Few species have got so close to extinction and recovered. Nonetheless, conservation efforts will need to continue if the future of this species is to be secured. Okay, now it's time for your last round of fun facts. More facts that are fun about the black-footed ferret, because they're just pretty bloody cool animals. Fun fact number one. Black-footed ferrets obtain their water from their prey. Fun fact number two. They are capable of delayed implantation. This means that the embryos do not begin development until the environmental conditions are just right. Fun fact number three. They communicate via olfactory methods. This means that they use urination and defecation to convey messages. What a smelly, smelly form of texting. And fun fact number four. More of a fun sound, this one. Last time I gave you the fun fact that black-footed ferrets are very vocal and they will chatter often. So here's an example of that. How cute does that sound? That was a little kit by the way, tiny little baby. Okay, so now we go back to the second half of my interview with Soraya Abdel-Hadi. 
As we heard previously, she is currently the operations manager for X Expedition, a community interest company that organizes all female sales with a focus on plastics and toxins in the ocean. When she is not working hard at that, she has her fingers in many other pies, including freelance writing, her blog, her beautiful net positive artwork, travel, and generally being an ambassador for the outdoors. So let's dive in and hear more about these ventures. Obviously, we've talked a lot about your, your writing there and that you're a freelance writer and you've got your blog talking about your experiences in the outdoors. Um, and obviously, you always talk about very important topics across the board. And of course, equality of opportunity is one of those things, regardless of your gender, your race, disability, orientation, etc., etc. Um, and of course, diversity in the outdoors. Um, are some of the topics that you've touched on recently and they're sort of things in the social sphere at the moment, um, I suppose. Um, I was wondering if we'd be able to explore sort of those things that you've talked about a little bit more here, um, particularly one of your pieces that talked about the importance of role modelling. So diversity in the outdoors is a really interesting topic for me because I am, obviously this is a podcast so you can't see me, but you might be able to tell from my name that um, I um, have a different different heritage, mm-hmm. potentially, is probably how I would say it. So um, I am mixed race, um, I have kind of olive skin, this is really weird, <laughs> describing myself. Look at um, looking at you. <laughs> And then I 
suddenly Black Lives Matter exploded um, <laughs> um, a few weeks ago and suddenly it became really cool to talk about this topic that I actually already knew quite a lot about. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I've been doing a lot of um, a lot of blogging about mm-hmm. it, and I guess the thing is, is there's so many different reasons why um, BAME individuals don't go into the outdoors, um, and they range from, as you were saying earlier, um, if you live in an urban area, um, it's actually not always that accessible to get mm-hmm. to kind of outside space, especially the big outdoors. If we're talking about you know going into the mountains or going to the coast or like places like that. Um, it can also be economic, um, it can be cultural, um, it can be uh, just a lack of um, knowledge around it. Mm-hmm. Like, what can I do? Like we were talking about the activities earlier, like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. that looks cool, but what does what does that actually mean for me? How do I do it? Um, so many, so many different reasons, because actually we might share like a range of skin color Mm -hmm. but we all have so many different backgrounds and for me um i didn't have a lot of these barriers um so i that's why i'm here (laughs) if that makes sense yeah um so i have been writing about the subject and one of the things that i can actively do um is work on the role modeling side of things because you look for people who look like you mm-hmm. for it to tell you oh, my dog is being really annoying <laughs> right enough um <laughs> you look for people who um who look like you in order to aspire to be mm-hmm. them so for example um i did a lot of work on as i said earlier like women in leadership is mm-hmm. like one of my special subjects and what i discovered when i was doing the research um is that previous research said that we look for um, attributes in leaders that we've seen in leaders that we have had previously, basically. So it's like self-perpetuating. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it, role modeling is so important because if you don't see someone who looks like you outdoors, you might not go. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and you don't see them in the adverts and you don't see them in the films mm-hmm. and about the outdoors. This is what I'm talking about specifically here. Um, you know how many times have you been i mean you probably the thing is is unless you look different you don't think about it but how many websites and your the opinion right now will be skewed because all the businesses have jumped on the bandwagon Mm -hmm. because they were getting a lot of um like flack for it essentially um but previously to the black lives matter movement you would struggle to find anyone who looked different on any outdoor Mm -hmm. brand website yeah like and like you said like i if i was looking on outdoor brand websites i wouldn't think of that because i'm i'm white i have the privilege to not have to think about that yeah yeah it's it's a it's a very it's a very interesting um dynamic and they're not doing it and they're not doing it intentionally Mm -hmm. It's also the fact that there isn't representation within those companies mm-hmm. to say, uh, hey, guys, uh, you're, you're actually not being representative. Um, and so that's complicated. But anyway, mm-hmm. there are people who are outdoors, doing outdoors things. Um, I've written a, written a couple of articles with general race resources, and then I wrote an article about um, diversity in the outdoors, sharing a bit more about my story, and then 
talking about the importance of role modeling and linking to some articles that are interesting reads about diversity in the outdoors in the UK because mm-hmm. we are bad at it. Yeah. We're really bad at it. Like the we don't like talking about it and the discussion around it has been weak mm-hmm. to say the least. People and get flustered and then they're like, it. oh no, let's not talk about that. Like oh. yeah. yeah, we're not ra- we're not we're not racist, we're not racist guys, mm-hmm. guys we're not racist. Um so let's just pretend that this isn't happening. Yeah, we're fine. <laughs> fine yeah. sweep it under this big yeah. white carpet and then put it back down <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly um and a lot of it is 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 subconscious so it's not intentional but it is um it's a different beast to the u.s mm-hmm. and i think that's something that we need to address um and if we don't have the diversity out there we don't have a, diver- a diverse range of voices talking mm-hmm. about different issues and yeah. i think we all know that conservation is an area where there do need to be these diverse voices and there does need to be a connection to the people who are working in these areas all around the world. Um, And there needs to be a a much clearer just representation, communication. Um, We can't create change if we're only looking at everything from one viewpoint. Exactly, yeah. I saw a lovely quote on, on Twitter um, saying that you know, if you don't have diverse science, you don't have science. Or if you don't have diverse conservation, you don't have conservation. Like it's all in, intrinsically interlinked. Um, and yeah, so yeah, we need to take a look at, at that and, and the bigger picture and, and do something about it for sure. Um, and those articles can be found on your your website. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. So um, I wrote one a couple of years ago for Adventure Uncovered, um, but I've linked to that from my website. Mm-hmm. And then I have a blog posts currently on my website. Um, I recently did an interview with She Extreme about it as well, but um, I don't know. I think that's maybe a members only thing, so I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you can get access to it. But I'm, I'm actually this morning, I was putting together a whole list of other articles that I've seen in the last couple of weeks that people have been writing about the subject. So I'll be posting more about it moving forward as well. Cool. Um, I would like. There's actually a really great um, uh, podcast as well, which is looking at um, women of color and people of color in conservation um, and the outdoors, mm-hmm. which I will dig out the link for. Um, which I keep meaning to listen to, but there are so many great things to listen so, to. <laughs> so many podcasts to listen to. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let let me know that, and I'll put that in the show notes as well if people want to. Um, explore more um, about or should explore more about these issues and and get a greater understanding for it Um, so thank you thank you for for talking to us about that Um, now we're all sort of stuck inside Um, well well lockdown's lifting a bit so we're not so much stuck inside but we're sort of stuck in our own countries um, in terms of travel Um, so I was hoping that we could live vicariously a little bit through you and your recent trips um, for a few minutes Uh, I know you mentioned to me that Recently, you've been on a whale shark conservation trip um, and a recent sail to British Columbia with X Expedition. Um, yeah, could you give us a little insight into how they were and what you got up to? Um, so I guess if I start with the X Expedition one, because I kind of already explained a little bit about what we're all about. Mm-hmm. Um, so we um, sailed from Vancouver to Seattle. This was actually in 2018 now, which feels like a really long way away when you say that. Um, Different time. For like half of this year, so yeah. <laughs> it doesn't count. This year's written off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
went to the the most memorable part of it actually is we went to the broken islands and we did a cleanup there um and we met with the um local indigenous group before when we landed and they gave us kind of a background about the history of the islands and that was really incredible and then we went over to this beach that's like not been touched by people for because it's on um really an uninhabited island and wow it was i don't know plastic pollution in different places is very different Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we imagine it to be in a particular way based on our own experiences, but also based on what we see in um, films. And on this particular beach, it was covered in um, polystyrene, but like really, really, really small, tiny, broken down bits oh, of polystyrene. Wow. Yeah. And it was crazy because when we first looked at it we were like well you know there are a few bottles you know there's a bit of like plastic waste um it's not like a huge amount of like uh what we would have expected necessarily mm-hmm. but then we really looked and it looked like when you first looked at it it almost looked like tiny little um bits of sand or bits of like pebbles mm. but actually it was polystyrene Polystine. and it was everywhere and it was very very like traumatizing yes yeah. how can you pick up how that you... exactly yeah um so you know you're not getting it really and you know it's only the tip of the iceberg because this is one beach in one place that you've um, that you're visiting mm-hmm. um so so yeah that was incredibly sad but i did uh, <laughs> but yeah i did see orcas so yeah <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Um, yeah and I think the thing is is the interconnectedness of everything mm-hmm. like the cleanups are important to um to get the to get the message across about what the scale of the issue that we're looking at is um and then the interaction of the wildlife and the experience of being on board and nature and all of that sort of thing it gives you that heightened um vision of what we want to protect mm-hmm um and then we do workshops and things on board so people can like find out what their how they could potentially apply their skills like what yeah. are all the solutions to plastic pollution like how how where do you fit like where mm-hmm. are you going to commit to create change as well so then you take you take the problem what you want to protect and your own skill set and then you work out like how you're gonna get a tie solution together yeah. um so yeah and it was amazing and i just love being on a boat Nice. Which, 
which is this tiny, tiny island off of the coast of um, Tanzania. It's like below Zanzibar, um, but it's not developed at all. Like you, you fly in in this tiny, 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 tiny plane, <laughs> and um, you land in this airport, which is like a shed. <laughs> it's not actually a shed, but it's like a tiny, tiny brick building that's like one. It's like one room. Um, and it says airport on it (laughs) (laughs) in just like paint someone's just scrawled it on (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and it's the most amazing place and we we worked with a um local um uh basically a local group that do um welsh trips um and uh we went out every day and we snorkeled with um, whale sharks with the aim of getting their IDs. So it's on like then because they're spotted in a particular way. Mm-hmm. So you want to photograph the left hand, left hand side, left hand side of them, um, so that you can hopefully get an ID. So we mm-hmm. know how they're moving and whether they are moving. Apparently in Mafia they tend to kind of stay in the same area, which is very unusual. Okay. Um, but we know we don't know very much about whale sharks, so it's like a great opportunity yeah. to contribute to something um, super important. Which um, is very mysterious, of... aren't they? Like, wait, like just marine life in general. Like, there's so much to learn still. <laughs> with the fact that they don't even know, it's like where do they where do they have their pups? Because we never see them. But yeah, they yeah. found a whale shark, a female whale shark, with like a hundred pups or something. Wow in her inside yeah her. it's like well where, where was she she must they must be having them in the deep sea and then most of the one males the ones you see near the surface mm-hmm. are, are like young males so where are where, where are, are the women yeah. <laughs> this is what i want to know <laughs> um so they're really really interesting um so yeah i just i loved it I, I was quite scared. I was I was surprised at how scared I was. Not about the whale sharks, but actually about the um the snorkeling because mm. the water is actually not that calm. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> Getting sp- really butters really in your snorkel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, some days it was crazy rough. Um but it was an amazing it's an amazing experience and it's great for the local community as well obviously right now it's an absolute disaster for them um mm. but it was a really great way for them to be able to make in- income from a conservation project mm-hmm. um you have to be a bit careful though because there are some like really big organizations that come in that run these trips who are obviously doing amazing things as well but then that takes away from these local communities who mm-hmm. actually quite often are better at it like yeah. the guys we had on our boat they um they used to work as fishermen they are super super strong super fast swimmers they can spot the whale shark they always spotted the whale sharks first mm-hmm. like before anyone yeah. else saw them they could see them from a mile away um i stood at the front of the boat with one of the guys actually and um <laughs> he was like you can help me spot the whale shark and i was like how about there? And he's like, no, no. that's seagrass. <laughs> I, I was like, how about there? And he's like, no, that's also seagrass. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's mad, end, isn't like, it? Yeah. Like when I was... End, I was like, oh, um, uh, do you think I could have a job? And he was like, yeah, really great job spotting seagrass. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, 
they're just the they're so huge as well like being in the water with them huge and gentle and they go round you um i was <laughs> probably the most the most memorable experience of that trip was when i got in the water and i'd had a bit of a freak out the day before because the water was really really rough like crazy rough um and so I got in the water with my friend's um, husband, who he run well shark trips before, so he's super confident and comfortable in the water. Um, and we're by the boat, and I look right, and there's this whale shark with its mouth wide open. Wow, feeding. yeah. Um, I looked at it, and I was like, oh, that's quite close. <laughs> but, you know, he's not freaking out, so, and he's really experienced, so obviously it's like it's fine. Um, and I looked back at him, and then at that moment he saw it, <laughs> and he was like, ah! <laughs> and I was like, oh. Oh, this isn't good, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's not, it's just, you just don't want to touch them. Yeah, of course, so yeah. trying to keep out of their way, but it was, it was probably about, it was about 12, probably about 12 metres long. So wow. So mouth was like pretty huge. Yeah. Um, just amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's so <laughs> humbling, isn't it? To be yeah. next to creatures like that, right next to them. <laughs> I know. And just to th- think that they exist in, in this world with us and, you know, we're doing so much damage to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, it's just seeing them and seeing the orcas and, like really seeing them in their natural environments and understanding it a bit better like you can be and that's why it's really difficult with conservation because you need to I feel like you do need to travel like you have to mm-hmm. travel to see these things to really get it them, yeah you don't understand mm-hmm. but also traveling causes its own damage depending yeah. on how you travel um and so that's one of the things that I've been i write about and talk about is kind of this more mindful approach to mm-hmm. to travel and places you go like would you have any tips for that yeah it's like if you can't find a different way of going there like you should definitely plan so like what are three ways i could get there mm-hmm. um and work out if they're possible um but if you if you can't find another way then what does that mean like you have to be really going somewhere to do something good mm-hmm. and you maybe you stay there longer than you might have necessarily stayed there and maybe it's like the only trip you do or that year or just something to kind of like limit that impact Mm -hmm. we've we have to go (laughs) but how do we do that responsibly and is there there's also a case of like once you've been do you need to go do you necessarily need to go back Mm -hmm. like there are lots of like super passionate people in all of these countries who are working to do this conservation can you support them in doing their own conservation where mm-hmm. they are rather yeah. than yeah. doing repeat visits it's yeah tricky yeah <laughs> That's like, yeah, another chap who I listened to on a podcast the other day, so many podcasts, <laughs> um, he was from Help the Rhinos, and he used to work um, as a director for American Express, and then was decided... Yes, yeah, and yeah. D- yeah, decided that, yeah, wanted to do something that helped um, in conservation, so now they fund all of the organisations on the ground in Africa um, from, from HQ in, in London. Um, or in the UK, I'm not sure if it was London, but yeah, just to be able to do that, like, so 
yeah, you know what's going on, you want to do something to help, but you're doing it from afar and helping the people who are already there with the expertise on the ground. Like you said, the locals know the animals and the lay of the land better than anyone. Um, yeah, so that's a really that's a really good point. Like you go there, you see it, that's awesome, but what then can you do from your own home? No, he's a he's a great guy. I was on a um, a panel with him actually last year, and uh, I yeah, I think their approach is like a really positive approach. Mm-hmm. And they say they have people asking them all the time, like, can we can we go and help? And he's like, we don't specifically do that. That's mm-hmm. not what we do. You know, we can we can tell you about the projects that we're working with, and they might have opportunities, but actually, that's not what we're about. We're mm-hmm. not about kind of volunteerism. We're we're about actually like just supporting them in creating change, which is which is incredible. Yeah, awesome, awesome way to to, to go about things. Um, so now I have I have one sort of final serious question for you, and it's a big one. Um, so what would your your ultimate dreams say in five years time be in regards to um sustainability plastic pollution and really like big businesses and governments really taking climate change seriously i mean that's a, <laughs> it's, it's a yeah huge yeah <laughs> <laughs> um it's like almost like saying what would your utopia be <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> um I mean, five years is not a huge amount of time. Um, I would say, and I think we are seeing it, but I don't know if we're seeing it on the scale that we need it, is a move towards um, a little bit like what I said about my artwork, which is obviously on a very, very small scale. But it's not just about not limiting your harm. Mm -hmm. We should be looking at ways that we can create something better Mm -hmm. and support positive change so in terms of businesses and governments we need to be not just looking at kind of like putting in these limits as to how much damage can be done and how much we can take away which I think a lot of us know are are set the bars are set so low in the first place anyway and the environmental laws are like very are just not enforced limousy Um, to say the least yeah exactly um and actually i read um client earth recently which Mm -hmm. is a really great book um about kind of the the enforcement of environmental laws in the uk and europe um and so that's a recommended read if anyone's interested in that sort of thing but um there just needs to be more responsibility taken and more action and then follow that up with like how can we make this better how can we not just not cut down the trees how can we look at rewilding projects and how we can yes. how we can make it better that way? And um, you know, it, it works the same way. Like to me, sustainability is people as much as it is environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are part of the environment. That's the whole point, isn't it? Um, but I think that it's also looking at the, the big social issues that we're facing and how can we create positive change around that. And the B the B Corp community have been doing this for a mm-hmm. while. Um, but I think it needs to just be more mainstream. Yes. It's a reality. So we'll have to see. At the top of agendas. Um, Yeah, and I think they're feeling the consumer pressure for it. Good, good. And I really hope that that grows and grows because there's still 
obviously when you're within your own echo chamber you see a lot of these issues come up and you sort of feel like you know about these issues and then you maybe meet someone in another walk of life and have a conversation where they're not aware of, of what's going on in the natural world and and I'm very naive in the fact that that always kind of takes me back a bit and always almost shocks me a bit I'm like how do you not know about these things but you know if it's not being spoken about in the in the mainstream then then they're not they're not going to know they're not going to you know have the opportunity to make small changes in their life to make things better because they're just not given that information um yeah so it's also overwhelming like the amount of um, information and then contradictory information that is passed out makes people take no action at all Mm -hmm. um because they get overwhelmed and i think we need to start spreading the message that people don't need to be perfect and they just need to make changes where they can make changes and if everyone makes a small shift then overall we're going to create a bigger change exactly um because we don't want to turn people off Mm -hmm doing anything at all yeah do something imperfectly to make that those incremental steps that add up to a big change for everybody yeah exactly cool okay so i have final two questions for you that i have to ask absolutely everybody um and the first one is if you could have any animal adaptation what would it be and why so I've been thinking about this a lot. <laughs> and <Good. laughs> I think a lot of people probably say flying, right? Yeah, very popular. That and breathing underwater. I hadn't even thought about breathing underwater. <laughs> That's actually a really good one. Um, I was thinking something more along the lines of like being, originally I was thinking about being like really stealthy, like being able to move and like, a way that nobody would be able to hear you. Ooh, sneaky, sneaky. I like well, it. Yeah. <laughs> what I want to do. Um, and then I moved into like more like chameleon, like being able to blend into your environment would be really cool. Yeah. Um, and then I thought actually it would just be really great to be able to see a really long way. So I think I went from like something which seems like a really cool answer, which is like, I would like to be a chameleon and blend in with my environment to, I just really want great eyes. I, I am totally, as, as you can see, I'm wearing glasses right now. So just, yeah, sight, that's one I haven't thought of before, which is, yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many options, but I think, um, yeah, that's the one I would go for. Okay, so question number two of the Zilly questions is who would play you in a movie of your life? So this is funny because this kind of ties back into our like role modeling conversation because mm-hmm. I feel like I couldn't really think of anyone much who kind of looked like me who I could choose. Um, so I would say the obvious one would be Beyonce because yeah. who wouldn't want Beyonce right? to play them? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like she looks like me, she dances like me, like her skin is perfect like mine, like just everything is just the same. Yeah. <laughs> very rich like me. Yeah, very successful, very strong. Yeah, it's all there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, so I think I'm like, and then I was like on the fence because I was like, oh, maybe like, um, uh, Jada, you know Will Smith's wife? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's also pretty cool, and she's also married to Will Smith. Um, A lovely added bonus, yeah. I don't think think you get... Them playing you in a film doesn't mean you get their life. 
sadly, no. <laughs> I think I'll stick with Beyonce. <laughs> Good choice. I like it. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, so thank you so much for answering my silly questions and, of course, all the serious ones and for sharing so much of your wonderful skills and passion and knowledge and everything about you and your life is sort of geared towards just making the planet a better place and I'm a bit in awe um, I have to say um, so thank you so much and and I just wondered if you had sort of any final words of wisdom that you'd like to share with us all um yeah I guess I would say I've taken a really non-traditional approach to get to where I am um, and I think that there are obviously barriers for people to make change in their lives and do different things but um, I do think that there are a lot of opportunities to change your route and change your track if you want to um, and if you feel like you do want to do that um, do the research and just start taking those steps and it might be that actually the thing you wanted to do like working with dolphins like I'm never gonna work with dolphins <laughs> I mean I might I might but realistically I'm probably not going to but what happened is by taking the first step on my route to working with dolphins mm -hmm. is I am now doing a job that I very much enjoy that really utilizes all of my skills um, and I'm able to work on all these other different conservation areas that I'm super interested in so I've kind of like taken a left turn but that's fine and yeah. um, so I think yeah that's probably what mm -hmm. I would say don't worry too much about it especially because I know that um, I think that there are quite a few um, younger people who work in conservation who might listen to this is um, my sister is much younger than me she is 22 and it's very easy to um, take life very very seriously and worry that every decision you make is gonna like be the thing that defines you for the rest of your life and the reality is that it might but it probably won't mm -hmm. <laughs> If we learn anything from this year, it's that things change very rapidly. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. And don't worry about it too much. Like mm -hmm. as long as it's a step forward, um, don't worry about whether it's uh, mm -hmm. whether it's the absolute right thing. Because is there ever an absolute right thing? I don't think there is. Absolutely, very wise words. Yeah. Uh, did you did you want to sort of take a, a quick opportunity to plug your socials where we can follow uh, you and your journey? <laughs> Oh, what a great idea. <laughs> um, so um, my website is um, soraya.earth, um, which is S-O-R-A-Y-A dot earth. Um, and my socials are all Soraya Earth, so without a dot. So that's Instagram and Twitter and also on Facebook um, and Pinterest. Ah, yeah, our first Pinterest <laughs> account to follow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that's and if my artwork is sustainable, creative, but it's linked through from my um, from my Instagram, so it's on, it's on there. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think that's everything. That's my. I'm not used to shamelessly plugging myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what this is all about. I want to give those amazing people the chance to to share with the world or, or what you're about and all what you're doing um yeah so that that's sort of that's a wrap i guess um 
again, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's It's been amazing. I could listen to you for many more hours. <laughs> I don't think I have. I don't think I have many more interesting things to say. I think I, I, think I, I, think I squeezed them all in there. Um, thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, it's been good. No problem at all. It's been an absolute pleasure. So that's that. That is it for season one of Turn On the Light. Thank you so much to everybody that has got this far with me um, and on this little little journey of, of optimism and positive planetary vibes. Um, I hope you have enjoyed. Um, I hope you will tell your friends about it, tell your family, anyone who might enjoy listening also. Um, yeah, just like to give a shout out uh, to those people who I know have listened to every episode. Um, of course, my mum, my sister. Um, I know Tash, you've listened to every episode too. Um, so thank you everyone who has supported this little journey. Um, and hopefully there'll be some more new and exciting things to tune into in 2021. Um, so thank you ever so much, guys. Stay positive, stay smiling. I love you lots. Um, and I will speak to you next year. Goodbye. And remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light.